This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Now, this is the last you're going to see of me for a little bit because on Tuesday, Ankit and I are going to India for 10 days, which is really exciting for a time of ministry there and a time of, for me, learning and discovery. It's going to be awesome. So I'll probably come back exhausted, but it's going to be really cool. So please pray for the two of us. That'd be a time of good friendship and uh, ministry and serving the Lord. And as a Canadian, I was delighted to discover that the national sport of India is hockey. Can you believe it? So I've packed my skates, and Ankit, is it okay if we stop at the first outdoor ice rink we see so I can play? Yeah? Awesome. He agreed to that very quickly. What a guy. So yeah, so we leave on Tuesday, we'll be back uh, in 10 days, and Samoon is in charge while I'm gone, so listen to the babysitter, don't give him a hard time, and uh, it's going to be great. Okay, we are going through the Gospel of Mark together as a church in our series, Jesus in Action, and we are ready at Mark chapter 12. So please turn there in your Bible, and let's listen to the word of the Lord. Now, we've got a bit of a longer passage today, split up into kind of four sections, four questions. So rather than read through the whole thing in one go, we're just going to do it part by part, okay? So Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. And I think the words will appear on the screen. Yes, they have. Listen to the word of the Lord. Later they, that is the Jewish leaders, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius. Let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So here we are, this is the Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. On Thursday, the day after tomorrow, Jesus is going to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and on Friday, he is going to be executed. So the clock is ticking, time is very short. And here we are in the last week of Jesus' life, and Mark has seen fit to record Jesus answering what seem like some kind of detailed theological questions. A delegation has been sent by the Jewish leaders to Jesus. They're looking for some way, any way, they can trick Jesus and trap Jesus. The word Mark uses for trapping Jesus is like trapping a wild animal. These Jewish leaders are thinking of Jesus like some kind of rat or vermin in their house. He needs to be caught and he needs to be exterminated in their minds. He's a threat to their power and their authority and he's making them very uncomfortable. He must be dealt with. And so the leaders sent to Jesus a delegation of Pharisees and Herodians. Now, this is a very awkward alliance. The Pharisees are this religious party, these teachers of the law, 
who represent all that is good and passionate about Judaism, they think. The Herodians are a party, a kind of a political party of people who supported Herod and ultimately Rome because Rome stood behind Herod. So these are two groups of people who would never work together. They're united only by their hatred and resentment of Jesus. You know what? It's not just love for Jesus that brings people together. It's also hatred of Jesus and his gospels that make, have his gospel that make for some very unlikely bedfellows. And they're sent to catch him in his words. And so they come to Jesus with a lot of compliments, don't they? They're saying some very, very nice things about Jesus. That he is a man of integrity and he speaks the truth. And he's not the kind of person who is adjusting what he says to who he's talking to. Jesus says it like it is. And they're coming out with all this complimentary flattery, aren't they? It's flattery. They're trying to butter Jesus up because they want to encourage him to abandon caution and emboldened by their compliments to say something very reckless and very foolish. These are not, this is not a sincere question they're asking Jesus. Not every theological question is sincere. And not every teacher of the Bible is speaking and acting out of pure love for God, aren't they? In fact, we all have the danger, like the Pharisees do, of using the word of God to establish our own power, to put other people down, and to put ourselves up. And the more these guys are immersed in the Holy Scriptures, the further away from God their hearts become. So they're not sincere. They're asking this trick question. And it's a question about the imperial tax. This was a very sensitive issue in Judea in the first century. 20 years earlier, when Jesus was about 10 years old, there had been a tax revolt led by this guy named Judas the Galilean. And he said, look, Jews, if you pay the tax to Caesar, you are cowards. It means you don't believe that we are God's free people in God's land. We need to overthrow the Romans and refuse to pay this evil tax. And so what the, the Pharisees and Herodians are doing is they're trying to draw Jesus into this. They're putting him on the horns of a dilemma. They're giving him two options, both of which are bad. It's like the question, have you stopped beating your wife? Whether you say yes or whether you say no, you're in trouble, aren't you? This is the kind of thing that they're trying to set before Jesus. Because if they say, if Jesus says, yes, we should pay tax to Caesar, then Jesus immediately loses credibility with passionate Jews who hate Rome. They're hoping that Jesus is going to lose popularity with the crowds who these leaders are afraid of. On the other hand, if Jesus says, no, we shouldn't pay tax to Rome, then immediately they're going to go off and report Jesus' words to the Roman governor. The Roman troops are going to come down and throw Jesus in prison and execute him as a rebel. So Jesus is either going to answer as a collaborator or as a conspirator. Either way, he's doomed. But Jesus is not fooled for a moment. His head isn't turned by their flattery and their seemingly kind words. Jesus knows their hypocrisy. He looks into their hearts and he sees their falseness. A hypocrite meant literally an actor, someone who was wearing a mask. And these Pharisees and these Herodians have a very elegant mask. They have spent a lot of time in makeup. But there's nothing beneath it except rottenness and death. And Jesus knows this. And instead of answering their question directly, he says to them, 
bring me a denarius and let me look at it. The denarius was a silver coin minted by the Romans that represented one day's work for a laborer. And this is what the imperial head tax would have been paid in, a denarius. Notice that Jesus doesn't have this coin. Jesus is a teacher who lives in poverty, and so are his disciples. So he needs to ask them, give me this coin, bring me this coin. And tellingly, his opponents have this coin handy. Here you are, Jesus, take a look. And then Jesus holds out the coin and he says, whose image and whose inscription is on this coin? And you can imagine a suspicious pause by the Pharisees and Herodians, but the answer is obvious. It's Caesar's face and Caesar's inscription on the coin. And we can find these coins from Roman times are around today still. And the, the, the face would have been of Tiberius Caesar, who was the emperor at the time. And the inscription would have read this, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. When his father Augustus or his predecessor Augustus had died, he was promoted to God status. And Tiberius is now claiming, I am the son of God. And I'm going to stamp that on my coins. And on the flip side of the coin was the image of a woman, probably Tiberius's mother, Livia. And the inscription read, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. This is what the coin said. This is not just political. It's deeply religious. And David Garland describes these coins as a portable idol promoting a pagan ideology. The image is idolatrous and the inscription is blasphemous. And here, by admitting that they have the coin in their pockets, ready to hand in Jesus, these Pharisees and Herodians are kind of wordlessly admitting that they are participating in this pagan system. They're participating in what Rome is doing. They're involved. Willingly or unwillingly, they are involved in this system. Like we all are involved in the systems and governments of this world. There is no way to avoid it unless we move out into the desert and live naked in a cave somewhere. These Pharisees and Herodians and all these Jews were benefiting from all the amenities that Rome had brought. They rode on Roman roads and bridges. They drank water that flowed through Roman aqueducts. They were kept safe by Roman law and order, and they participated in the economic system that Rome had set up. And so Jesus says to them these famous words, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Now notice this is kind of a veiled answer because Jesus doesn't define what is Caesar's and what is God's. That's left for the listener to fill in. So a Roman spy could have been standing there and Jesus would have said nothing worthy of being arrested. And some fanatical zealot rebel could have been standing there and Jesus would have not necessarily said anything that would get him enraged. This is a veiled reply that we have to kind of dig into. Now the Jesus is not saying this. Reality is divided into a sacred realm that belongs to God and a secular realm that belongs to Caesar. Caesar is not allowed to invade God's realm and God is not allowed to go into Caesar's realm. Whoa, 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 God, 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 what are you doing? That's not your area, that's Caesar's area. How dare you go into that? Jesus is not saying that because like every good Jew, Jesus proclaimed that the God of Israel was the Lord over all. 
See, Caesar has authority. There is something that belongs to Caesar, but it's not authority beside God. It's authority under God. Caesar and the governments of this world have authority under God. And because we confess Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, Jesus is Lord, out of obedience to Jesus, we give what is necessary to the government. We pay our taxes. We're as good citizens as it's possible to be. We honor the government because we honor Jesus. But it's limited. Caesar is not everything, and his rule is not everything, and money is not everything. And so in a sense, when Jesus is saying, give back to Caesar's what is Caesar's, he's kind of saying, send those little bits of metal back to Caesar. Those little bits of metal are not the most important thing in life. They came from Caesar. They can go back to Caesar. We're not hugely concerned about that. The money may belong to Caesar, but the divine honors that he's claiming don't. Caesar is not the son of God. He is not the high priest. We don't go that far in giving Caesar everything that he demands. What's more interesting is the second part of what Jesus says. Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's, but give back to God what belongs to God. So here's this denarius. Whose image and whose inscription is on it? Caesar's. What has God's image on it? And what has God's inscription on it? It's human beings, isn't it? It's people who are created in the image of God. We all have God's face stamped upon us. And we, if we are God's people, on the flip side, we have God's inscription written over us. His name is written on us. And so we are coins from God's mint, as it were. We might be wandering coins. We might be lost coins. We might be very faded coins. But we're coins from God's mint, and we belong to him. So Caesar might get my little coin because it belongs to him. But God owns me. I belong to him. I must give back to God my very self. Tertullian, who was a church father about 150 years after Jesus, he was from North Africa, and he said this about this text. You give to Caesar only money, but to God give yourself. And so Jesus is taking this question from the Pharisees and Herodians, and he's pushing it in a very awkward direction for them because their hypocrisy and their murderous thought show they have not given themselves to God. Whatever happens with Caesar, they have not given themselves to God. Like we saw last week in the parable of the vineyard, they're withholding what belongs to God and they're denying God's ownership over themselves. And so Mark tells us everyone is amazed at him and cannot, they don't have a handle on Jesus. They can't arrest him for what he's saying. Okay, let's go on. I know we're being very brief, but we're I've got a lot to cover this afternoon. Let's go on in chapter, in chapter 12 here to the next verse, verse 18. We've seen the Pharisees and the Herodians coming to Jesus. Now we've got the Sadducees. Mark 12, verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children... The man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. 
At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So first question the Pharisees and Herodians had was a political question. Now we've got a theological question. The Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus with flattery. The Sadducees are full of ridicule and mockery. It's a different kind of attack. They too call Jesus teacher, but they are no more sincere in seeking truth than the Pharisees are. Now we don't encounter the Sadducees very often in the New Testament, but these guys were wealthy aristocrats. They were part of the priestly caste. And they're called Sadducees probably after Zadok the priest, David's high priest. They were at the center of power. They were there in the temple in Jerusalem, and they were the ones who were really running things. And as the wealthy class, as the ones with power, they were deeply conservative. They thought of the Pharisees as innovators. They were conservative, and they wanted to preserve the status quo at all costs. Do you know what? If you're poor and you have nothing to lose, revolution sounds like a good idea. But if you're wealthy and things are going well for you, you want things to stay, to stay the same. Venezuela is a horrible place right now, and there are massive protests, and it's awful. But there are people there with things as they are working out pretty well for them because they're up there in the army or they're in the, in the government. Things are working well for them, and they want things to stay the same. And it was the same with the Sadducees. They thought life was good, and so they really had no interest in the resurrection. Things were working out well out for them here. Why do we need a hope of a future life? In fact, all this talk of resurrection to them was very dangerous because it encouraged martyrdom. If you believe that once you die, that's not it, but there's hope for you afterwards, you're going to be a lot braver in risking your life in some reckless act of insurrection against the Romans. And that is what the Sadducees did not want to happen. Resurrection for them was a bad thing and a foolish thing. And so they come to Jesus with this ludicrous scenario. It's quite farcical, actually, the story that they've developed. It's a story that is based on um, this Old Testament teaching of leveret marriage. So the idea in the Old Testament described in Deuteronomy chapter 25 was this. If a man dies and he has no children, his brother has got to take the wife, marry her, and produce an heir. This was for two reasons. One was to provide the widow with economic support, but also so that the man would have an heir and the family line would not die out, but it would continue. There would be a son and a grandson and so on and so forth. And so the Sadducees bring forth this law and use it to try to prove that the resurrection is a silly idea. They're building an unfair caricature and then they're demolishing it because you know what? Only a stupid person would believe in the resurrection. And here's why. Listen to this scenario, they say to Jesus. And so they set up this scenario. They could have stopped it at just two brothers, but they go on to three, four, five, six, seven. And they imagine that on the day of resurrection, here's this one woman standing there and there are seven guys fighting over her. Now, Jesus, which one of them gets the wife? And Jesus does not have a problem with what they think is a knockdown, 
total argument. He says to them this, guys, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Oof. That is a brutal thing to say to a religious teacher. I like to get some feedback on my sermons once in a while. But if someone said to me, Bart, to be honest, it's pretty clear that you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. That would be a devastating thing for me to hear. And I would probably resign permanently after that point. And Jesus has no fear of saying to the face of these highly respected, powerful people in the very temple grounds itself, you guys know nothing about the Bible and you know nothing about God's power. You think you know it all, you don't. You're estranged from God and far from him. Look, Jesus says, here's how it works. When the dead rise, there's not going to be marriage anymore. You guys are thinking in purely earthly terms and imagining that resurrection just means you rewind and go back to where you started from, as if the future life with God is just going to be like it is now, except it extended infinitely. Resurrection, Jesus is saying, is a transformation. It's not just a resuscitation where people come back from the dead. There are going to be great changes. And life as it is now is going to be transposed into a higher key. The Sadducees had a limitation of imagination. Their idea of God's power was very small. And they could not even conceive of God taking this life and making it massively more wonderful and good than it is now. So Jesus is saying, at the resurrection, when God raises the dead from their graves, marriage is going to be done with. How do you feel about that? Maybe if things are not going so well between you and your spouse, you're like, that sounds like good news. No more crying, no more tears, no more suffering, and no more marriage. But hopefully, if things are going well, you might feel a twinge of sadness about that. Because... Marriage, at its best, is the sweetest and closest experience we can have in this life. And how on earth is it good news for Jesus to say, marriage is going to be done with? You know, it's very hard for us to imagine something better than marriage. Just like it's very hard, I'm sure, for a little fetus in the womb, a little baby in the womb, to imagine what life outside the womb could be like. And how could anything possibly be better than being in this warm, dark place with an umbilical cord pumping all the nutrients into me? I cannot even imagine anything better than this. And it would be very difficult to explain to a little infant in the womb about barbecued ribs and playing on the Xbox and riding a horse and all these really cool experiences you have when you're out of the womb. It's awesome. It would be very hard to explain that to an infant in the womb, because they have no terms of reference in that warm, dark place about the better life that awaits them. That's why the woman's body pushes that baby out despite what it wants. No fetus has ever voted to leave the womb. They come out in a very bad mood, don't they? They're crying and screaming. It sounds like bad news to be pushed out of there. But there's something more wonderful awaiting them. And it's the same thing with this future life that God has for us. It's very hard for our minds to grasp it based on the experiences of this life. And we can only come up with some vague and dim analogies to make, but there's going to be something far better that is going to come. And all the good things about marriage, the physical 
and emotional and relational sweetness that comes at the best moments in marriage are going to be superseded by something far better. And your relationship with your husband or your wife now is going to be much better in heaven. And it will be much better with God and with everyone around you. There is going to be an experience of wonderful fullness and unity that we will experience with everyone else in this world of love with God. And when we're in heaven and we we discover what marriage has been replaced with, there's going to be no sense of loss, I promise you. No feeling of regret, no sense, ah, we really got ripped off by this. It's going to be much better. And so these Sadducees have limited God's power by failing to imagine how God could transform this life here into something far greater. That's Jesus' explanation. And then he comes with an argument. They also had misunderstood the scriptures. And so he says to them, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, there are a lot of scripture texts that Jesus could have used in the Old Testament. There's not a ton about the resurrection in the Old Testament, but it is in there. You can find it in Isaiah and the Psalms and Daniel and different books that Jesus could have gone to. But the Sadducees only accepted the five books of Moses, the Torah. They thought all the other books were a little bit suspicious. They did not accept them as coming from God, but they did accept the five books of Moses. So Jesus goes there with this story from the burning bush where God appears to Moses in a flame of fire and he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the argument is probably not what you might think it is from reading this in English because we read it, I am the God, not I was the God. That's not the argument Jesus is making here because there's no verb, in fact, in the Greek here and there's no tense in the Hebrew original. It's not based on grammar here. There's something more profound going on and it's this that god had sworn an eternal covenant with the patriarchs with abraham isaac and jacob he promised to be their god forever and ever so the logic is this if god has sworn these mighty oaths to these men how could anything even death break that covenant relationship time And decay and death cannot end a relationship that the God of eternity begins. It's him that guarantees it. And so the hope of resurrection, it's not based on the immortality of the soul or something inherent to human beings. It's about something inherent to God. God does not change. He is immutable. And when God makes a promise, he makes it come to pass. And so our hope in the resurrection is based on God's covenant commitment to us, on his never changing, never giving up, always and forever love. That's what makes the resurrection a certainty. And so Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God's not going to leave them rotting in the grave, dead and forgotten. And he's not going to leave us rotting in the grave if we belong to God. If we're swallowed up by death forever, then God is no longer the God that he claims to be. So, Jesus says to these guys, you are badly mistaken. You are badly mistaken. They haven't just missed out on a point or two on the exam. Ah, only 97%. These guys have badly, badly failed the exam. And they have gone terribly wrong 
about God's promises and God's power. Their whole idea of what salvation involves and what the hope of God is, is way off base. They're badly mistaken. Okay, that was the second question. The third question Jesus deals with, let's read on in Mark chapter 12. At verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. His second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So here Jesus has dealt with some very insincere and trickery, uh, tricky and slippery questions. And there's a guy who overhears, and he is a scribe. And scribes are normally not spoken of positively in the Gospels, but this guy seems like a rather decent sort. He overhears Jesus' responses, and he can't help but admiring the wisdom with which Jesus responds. And so he comes to Jesus with the question that was often discussed by Jews of this time, which commandment is the most important? The Pharisees had counted up all of the commandments in the Old Testament. There were 613 That's a lot of commandments to obey. Wouldn't it be helpful to know which one is the most important? What is the starting point from which everything else derives? And so we ask Jesus this pressing theological question. So we've had a political question about Caesar. We've had a theological question about the resurrection. And now we have this ethical question about the law of God. That this man asks very sincerely. And Jesus has no hesitation in responding. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6. And those words, hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, that was like the Apostles' Creed of the Jewish religion. It was the most important confession of Judaism. And right after that great confession of the oneness of God and his supremacy is this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. That is the most important command. What makes someone a good person? I think it's this, that we love what most deserves to be loved. What do you love and what do you treasure in your heart? What is most valuable to you? The only legitimate answer to that question is God himself. Because God is far more worthy and far more valuable and far more precious than anything in all of creation. What makes our hearts excited and what moves us and drives us in the great decisions of our lives? This is the root of all of the law, love for God. And you can go a long ways without love for God. We can go pretty far on autopilot, can't we? We can go through the motions 
And we can do some very impressive things in obeying God, just like these Pharisees and these Sadducees did. But without love for God, we're basically hollow people, aren't we? The most important thing at the center of our faith is missing. And we can go a long, long ways in self-deception. And God doesn't care so much about all that stuff if the very heart of things, our own heart for God, is missing. And what Jesus is saying, quoting Deuteronomy 6, is that God wants all of us, all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our strength, all of our mind. No part of ourselves held back from the love of God. The love of God should fill the totality of our being and be the passion of our lives that possesses everything we are and everything that we do. No, no half measures, all of it. That's a heavy command, isn't it? A lot of the other stuff, some of it's easy to keep, some of it's difficult to keep, but this seems like it's impossible to keep. And we all have to confess, we fall short of that and we fall far short of what God is asking for. Give back to God what is God's. His image and inscription are stamped on you and God is calling you to return in love to him. But Jesus refuses to give just one answer to the scribe's question about the greatest commandment. And he cannot talk about love for God without immediately going on to love for neighbor. Do you know what? Love for God, we can't isolate that from our social relationships. I don't know if any of you know who A.W. Tozer was. He was a great man of God who died, I think, in 1970 or thereabouts. And he has written some powerful books. There's one called The Pursuit of God, I think. Very moving book. And this was a man with a deep passion for God. He pursued God with his whole heart. And then when he died in 1960s or 70s, his wife, his wife remarried. And it would be tough to be the husband to follow up on A.W. Tozer, this great man of God, wouldn't it? He was a brave man. And um, his wife was asked, what's it like being married to this guy compared to your new husband? And she said, she said, you know what? Being married to Aiden, my first husband, he loved Jesus. But my husband now loves me. There was a big gap in A.W. Tozer's life. He was a man of God who pursued God. He was a mystical person, deep in prayer. But in all of that, his wife felt lonely and neglected. That is not the kind of relationship that God wants us to seek with him. Here's what 1 John 4 verse 20 says. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love the brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. We can talk and talk about having this huge heart of worship and wanting to listen to worship songs all the time on our, on our iPhone and spending hours and hours in prayer. But if we're neglecting the people around us, our husbands, our wives, our children, our neighbors, we're not loving God the way we claim to. Those are the two most important commands of the long list of commands in the Old Testament. One from Deuteronomy 6, the other one from Leviticus chapter 18. 
You know, it's interesting. When you read that passage in in Leviticus, what surrounds God commanding loving your neighbor as yourself, they're very practical things like this. In your vineyard, when harvest time comes and some grapes fall to the ground, don't pick them up. Leave them on the ground so that poor people can come and have something to eat. Don't mock blind people or deaf people. Take care of the poor. Don't hold wages back from your workers overnight and rebuke your neighbor for his good if he does something wrong. All these 611 commands are practical applications of these primary commands that God gives. We love God, we love our neighbor, and then we work that out in obedience to God. But you know what? If that supreme motive is there, if our hearts are filled with love for God and with other people, obeying these other commands is not going to be hard, is it? But if we're filled with selfishness and we're not loving people, the commands are going to be a great burden on our hearts, aren't they? It's going to be drudgery and difficulty. And God wants us to be filled with love as the most important thing. Well, this scribe is impressed with Jesus' answer. Well said, teacher, he says. He congratulates Jesus on the wisdom of his reply. Jesus has given an answer that this guy likes. And he repeats Jesus' answer and says, this stuff is more important than the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is what is ultimate, which is quite true. And Jesus, in turn, appraises him. This man came to judge and assess and weigh Jesus, and he thinks the conversation's over, but Jesus is there to weigh him up and to appraise him. And Jesus says this about him. You're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom. This guy isn't like the Pharisees and Sadducees, scheming, mocking, flattering. He is a man of sincerity who genuinely seems to want to please God And he's not far from the kingdom. It is surprising that even the scribe, a class of people who are not very admired in the gospels, even among the scribes, there's a guy who's not far from the kingdom. He's not far, but he's not in the kingdom. Far, but not in. And in the end, whether you're far or near, if you're outside of the kingdom, that is disaster. See, it's not enough to admire Jesus as an ethical teacher wow, these parables are really amazing and his teaching is so full of of wisdom and it would be really great if everyone followed that. That's not enough just to admire Jesus as a teacher. He comes with a personal claim on everybody. The image of God is stamped on you. Now, come. Sell all that you have and follow me as my disciple. That is what Jesus is asking for. And so after these three questions... No one is putting up their hands anymore. No one dared to ask him any more questions. Anyone? Anyone? People are even avoiding eye contact with Jesus. He's won the field. He's answered all of their questions. And now Jesus has a question for them. Let's read the last bit of our passage here in Mark chapter 12 at verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to Jesus with delight. So we've had these three questions. A political question, 
a theological question, an ethical question. Jesus has answered them, and now he's turning the tables, and he has a question for them. And this is a Christological question. Who is the Messiah? Who is the Christ? Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is David's son? Well, everyone at this time agreed, yes, of course, the Messiah is the son of David. And in fact, Jesus agrees with this himself. He's not denying that the Messiah is the son of David. He's saying, that's true, but it's not enough. It's accurate, but it's not adequate. Your idea of the Messiah is actually a lot. It's way too small. And he quotes Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Quoted to or alluded to 33 times. This is a very important Psalm. And he quotes verse one. And he says, this is what David said, speaking by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, incidentally, is affirming that God inspired the Holy Scriptures. And he quotes verse 1 of that psalm. Here's what David says. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The Lord would be all capitals in the Old Testament. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one speaking. And he's speaking to someone that David describes as my Lord, someone supreme over David. And this person, this strange figure, is being told by God, sit at my right hand. He is being offered the place of supreme cosmic honor. He is allowed to sit beside God on his throne. No king of Israel, however great, is ever spoken to by God this way. They reign below God, not beside God. But this person is given the ultimate position of honor and status and authority. And he's told, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. When ancient kings conquered their enemy, they would literally stand on their neck to demonstrate total domination on their domination and total submission. So this person is going to be exalted to the very highest place possible in the universe. And he's going to crush every enemy and bring them in total submission to himself. So here's this huge figure that David is talking about. And Jesus' question is this, how can this person be both David's Lord, obviously far greater than David, and also be David's son? Surely the son is junior in status to the father, to the ancestor. Who is this person? Who is this Messiah that's being spoken of? See, the key question is not about politics. It's not about theology. It's not about ethics. The key question is this, who is Jesus? And Jesus is not just pulling this out as some kind of bizarre, profound theological question. This is a vital, vital question that these people need to answer. Who is Jesus? And just who is this Messiah that we're expecting? Is he just a clone of David, a merely human savior, no better than all the kings that preceded him? Or is there someone very, very special indeed that has arrived? You know, there's no more important question for anyone here seeking a relationship with God than this. Who is Jesus? You might have a lot of other questions, a long, long list of questions about how things sort themselves out. And they deserve answers. 
But the most important question you need to be asking and answering is this. Who is Jesus? Is Jesus just a great teacher with a lot of wisdom? Or is he the supreme Lord over all of the universe, including myself? And how you answer that question is going to determine everything. And this question, who is Jesus, is also the key question for us who follow Jesus every day. Who is Jesus? And it's so easy for Christians to get distracted, isn't it? In politics or theology or ethics, all these very good and very important questions can start to crowd out Jesus. And what really gets us excited and passionate and really gets our juices flowing are questions about the end times or speaking in tongues or the role of men and women or Calvinism and Arminianism. All these other things can grip our hearts and we actually begin to forget about Jesus himself. The key issue for this church every week, week after week after week is this. Is Jesus Lord or isn't he? And if Jesus is Lord, then nothing else matters in comparison with him. Everything will somehow sort itself out or find itself in its true position in relationship to him. Now think for a moment how grasping the lordship of Jesus really resolves all three questions that have been brought to Jesus. Here's this question about Caesar. If Jesus is the supreme Lord, if he is the king of kings and Lord of lords, if he sits beside God on his throne, then it's Jesus, not Caesar, who deserves our ultimate allegiance. Jesus is the son of God and Jesus is the high priest and whatever the state and the government might claim, they are not, they are not. Jesus deserves our ultimate allegiance and whatever the state may claim on us, whatever oppression that we might experience from the government, Jesus is on the throne at the right hand of God and he is going to put every enemy under his feet. It's not our job to do that. We're not called to violently overthrow governments, but God is going to violently overthrow governments in his own time, in his own way. And in the end, every Caesar, great or small, is going to come before Jesus and Jesus is going to place his foot on his neck and that leader will have to confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord to the glory of the Father. So Jesus ultimately resolves every political issue. What about this theological issue about the resurrection? Jesus as Lord is the supreme realization of God's resurrection power. If you want to see the power of God, go to Jesus. Because the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is also the God and Father of Jesus Christ, who has been declared to be the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. Here's the logic that we follow. Jesus Christ has been raised from death as the first fruits of a new creation. Death could not hold on to Jesus. He is too great for death. And now Jesus reigns over death. He has the keys of death and the grave on his belt. And because Jesus is supreme and reigns over death itself, death will not be able to hold on to us either. And we will be raised and we will be transformed into his image. And then Jesus, as supreme Lord, resolves every ultimate ethical question. What is right? What is wrong? It all points to Jesus because he is the supreme end of the law. 
It wasn't just the prophets that pointed to Jesus. It was the law itself. You know this command to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. There was only ever one Israelite who ever fulfilled that command. And that was Jesus of Nazareth. Everything he did, every moment of his life, was filled with pure and perfect love for God. And there was never a moment when there was a tinge of any kind of impurity in Christ's love for God. Even at our best moments, none of us had even come close to that. And that was just the way that Jesus lived his life. And Jesus also demonstrates the supreme love for neighbor, doesn't he? He comes and he dies for us who are poor and helpless, his neighbors, his brothers and sisters. And he takes us by the hand and he covers and he changes everything that is lacking and our own failure to keep God's law. He covers it and then he changes us and empowers us by the Holy Spirit to truly love God and our neighbor from the heart. So when we bow before Jesus in worship and in trust, all these other questions resolve themselves. Jesus is at the center. The disciple Thomas was a man with a lot of doubts and a lot of questions. But he too was brought to Jesus' feet and he confessed, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. That is the confession of every Christian. Not just the Lord and the God, but my Lord and my God. And the Lordship of Jesus is not this abstract, academic, intellectual question. It is a pressing question on each of our hearts. Do we acknowledge in the way we think and love and live that Jesus is supreme and we owe everything to him? Let's pray, and then we're going to stand and worship the Savior. Jesus, we worship you for your wisdom. Thank you that the answer to every question is in you. We ask that you would fill our hearts with the love for you that only you can provide. Help us to acknowledge your ownership of our lives, the hope that we have in you, and your supremacy over all things. We need your Holy Spirit, Lord, because we are weak and inadequate to fulfill this great calling that you have over us. Give us grace, we pray. And may this little community and these little lives show by your power that Jesus is awesome. In his name we pray. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.